welcome to this episode of the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Monique Morrow, president of the Vetri Foundation. We're talking today on humanizing the internet through trust and transparency. Welcome, Monique. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get started, we'd love to know more about your background. Can you help our, our listeners understand your story? Sure. Uh- I have a technology background, um, started in the semiconductor industry. Everything was about the network. Went into um, to work for Swisscom in that space. And I'm just going to fast forward into Cisco, into that space for 16, 17 beautiful years, including years hybrided abroad. So uh, I can't express and amplify more and further what the value of the network is. And with that, we can go into other areas that uh, bring value. You mentioned being at Cisco several Mm -hmm. years. If you could even go back a little farther, though, what first got you uh, interested in the network and and into telecom? So that would probably be around the mid-'80s, which I'm dating myself. (laughs) You know, when we were talking about punch cards and everything else, uh, there was a little company called Cisco that that just received venture capital from Sequoia. Working for a semiconductor company, uh, we were expanding our manufacturing sites uh, through other locations, not only including in the United States, but also abroad, and the network was proving to be much, much more pivotal. So it was during that time where I found that, you know, multi-protocol routing was going to be very, very key. Were you in Europe at the time? No, I was in Sunnyvale, California. So you have a unique perspective because you've seen the development of the network both in U.S., Europe, where I believe you, mm-hmm. you reside today, as well as time in Asia. That's correct. Could you maybe contrast the differences between the three regions and how they've embraced or followed the trajectory of the network? Well, that's really uh, an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, the United States, being in the middle of Silicon Valley, so all was sort of uh, the epicenter at that particular time, so there was uh, tremendous growth in the value of the, of the network. Bear in mind, I'm talking about the mid-80s, and I saw that change that was occurring, but occurring also in architecture. So mainframes to client-server architecture uh, to multi-protocol routing. So, you know, we saw that in, in Silicon Valley. When I moved to, to Europe, uh, when I moved specifically to Switzerland uh, to work for a company whose customer was the Swiss PTT at the time, you're talking 1990. And there, I, there was more of a look at you know, what is happening in, in the United States? You know, there was sort of like trying to adopt a bit of what the United States had been doing. But again, uh, it was uh, really to kind of changing that uh, mindset to, again, bring in the value of the network itself. Now, you had to be neutral because at this time I wasn't working for Cisco or any of these other networking companies, but I saw value in what they were doing. So you had to sort of bring in forth the the opportunity, and, and particularly Cisco was one that I actually um, amplified during that period of time. Uh, if we fast forward to Asia, uh, wow, you're talking scale. I mean, scale to whatever it is that we had to do. We had to, the thing too, throughout this evolution was to bring about a service provider mindset within a company. Not an enterprise mindset, but a service provider because the network always has to be up. If it fails, you make front page news. And this is something that I always had to express to within the company. When I went to Asia, I was representing Cisco. I was working for Cisco in the region. And there you're talking about massive scale, millions and millions of subscribers. 
uh, especially just take a, a customer like uh, various service provider customers in China or various service provider customers in India, that scale is, is, is massive. And so certainly you couldn't have an enterprise-centric architecture. So the network uh, had to be scalable, it had to be secure. And the, the other uh, notion is that you really had to make sure toward the end, you had to look at what what would be open source. And that is sort of a, I would say, controversial issue because, um, you know, we when I was at Cisco, we made a lot of money off of complexity. And uh, now people were asking for simplicity and how do you hide that simplicity, which is of art, yet allow for scale, yet allow for security. And then, of course, we saw movements toward open source. And that was that was something that was very, very interesting from a perspective of a customer, uh, a company that was really much in the space of routing and switching. And of course, uh, we had some, some commonality there uh, <laughs> during the Cisco years. We talked about that a few minutes ago. Can you maybe comment, since I was there at least familiar with the transition from very hardware-centric mm-hmm. to software, and maybe how you handled that or some of the interesting challenges that brought out? Yeah, sure. And that's an important issue. I mean, uh, you know, uh, at the time you make uh, everything was pulling as much as you can value through your hardware. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, as I moved across the company, I was I was their first CTO in services and services at the time, 20,000 person company. It's an institution. It's a company in its own right. Um, you had to look at now what were solutions going to look like. Uh, there was also an internal discussion about um, how we were going to deal with software, how we were going to deal with, you know, bringing value through software, uh, and, uh, you know, and what were solutions going to be. But there still was in the background, yes, but everything has to pull in, you know, you want to pull some value in through some of that hardware as you start to uh, promote more software and services, tendentially you were still going to pull that hardware. And I think that's the polarity that, you know, the cu- cust- uh, companies like these wonderful networking companies have been going through is how do they manage that. In fact, we still have to, if you look at the internet and you look at which companies are operating uh, the internet and with what what uh, routers, you have to care about the hardware at the end of the day. So let's not, you know, poo-poo that in a way that uh, it's it's just, uh, you know, going to be about software. But it is the balance. And I think where we started to face uh, problems was when people were looking at OpenFlow. <laughs> Do you remember out of Stanford? And people were looking at uh, what does commoditization look like? And, uh, you know, uh, when do you actually cannibalize internally to grow your young? Uh, all of these painful discussions that we were having as a company and, uh, you know, as, a, as an organization because people were very used to a certain way of operating and developing. And then, you know, uh, p- then came in the questions about what does agile look like and agile organizations and how fast is fast. Uh, what you found, is you had other entrants into this market. You know, what was a service provider? Is Facebook a service provider? Is Google a service provider? And the answer is yes, they are. So uh, we were now having these really uh, heartburn moments about defining our own identity, especially if I talk about my time during C- at Cisco. And the customers, the thing of it is, is customers wanted, um, you know, they wanted bug-free, fairly much bug-free software and, and hardware, which you're not going to have 100% 
bug free. But the thing of it is, is that you had customers who would say we're guilty too, because we're pushing you on timelines and time to market, you know, when you're looking at releasing very quickly, what is the balance that you have? Uh, the worst thing is that, as I said before, making front page news because of a terrible bug that may have uh, uh, impacted the safety of an organization. You'd mention that you got your start in Sunnyvale or mm-hmm. the Bay Area. Let's be specific, Silicon Valley. And as a woman in the 90s growing up through tech that, that had to be have its challenges in that bro culture, any interesting stories that you can share or maybe not want to, but you could share? Of course. I mean, look, I was in the most conservative market, semiconductor. Mm-hmm. I will say this, uh, my best coaches have uh, always been men. So I'm going to say that. And primarily because there were no women at the time. <laughs> right. So let's just say that up, up front. However, what I found is the, the thinking about gravitating toward problem solutions, trying to resolve problems because technology has no agency. So if you're actually in one room and you're trying to solve for a problem, it becomes very interesting in terms of the discussion and approaches. Uh, so so yes, many time I was the woman in, in the room. However, it got more interesting when I was in, in Europe, in, in Switzerland, because now I have to give you sort of the um, background. Switzerland had voted for women to have the right to vote in 1971, and the last canton that held out was around 1994. So I entered Switzerland in 1990, and I'm sort of like this unidentifiable object, you know. It's sort of, you're not only foreign, but we can tolerate you a little bit. I mean, I I got away with some of the things in terms of being able to be provocative. Many times, many times, we would be in a room like this where I'm the only woman, and it would be who's going to write the protocol or the minutes? And they would look at me, or who's going to get the coffee? And I said, well, guys, <laughs> um, let's just agree to one thing. Whoever whoever sets up the meeting, that person, or we can round robin, that's one thing. And the other thing, we can all get our own cups of coffee. I mean, but because that was what they were used to, right? And so it was more of a just take a step back, and 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 these are sort of the cultural nu- nuances. I think that I do believe the times are changing and have been changing. I believe it's harder for women entrepreneurs and startups. Uh, I think they are judged in a different uh, way, uh, perhaps a little more harsher than uh, you know our, our male counterparts. Uh, and I think uh, if you have, it's been told. I've had one colleague who said she would send her CTO to do the pitch because. You know, they looked at him as uh, in a different way. So I think we need to change that uh, a little bit. And as I said before, being a technologist is all, also about curiosity. But the fact that we're talking about this issue in the 21st century leaves me with deep concern um, because one person actually told me it will take a generation for that to all change. And I'm thinking, um, I don't think so. I think it's got to go faster. And in some countries, they are. In some countries, you know, it's a no-brainer. It's just that in some other countries, it, people are struggling with this particular issue. Well, I wanted to ask, because you, again, have the unique perspective of, of being a leader and executive on multiple continents, mm-hmm. so you're able to compare and contrast. Getting a little more specific on the issue of uh, trust and transparency against this backdrop of the network and its evolution, how have you seen, just call it conventional wisdom or thought about trust, evolve over the last decade or two? By the breaches that I see. Every day, millions and millions and millions of, we, we, especially if we're talking about Internet of Things, if we're talking about uh, anything, if I say Capital One, the breaches are happening. And so this is about um, how, do we, uh, how do we actually ingrain the component of trust within organizations such that, you know, it takes years and years to build and it takes a minute to just destroy 
And so your brands get destroyed. And so, uh, you know, this gets into this polarity between cybersecurity and privacy. I think that trust is extremely important in this day and age. Um, even myself, you know, I will tell you that I'm a, a VIP customer in a carrier in Switzerland, and my data was handed over accidentally to a, a third party, one of the 1,500 partners that the the carrier uh, works with. It wasn't enough that the CEO's data was also compromised, but it was my data. You know, it was sent over, and you get an SMS, and it says, oh, "Well, sorry, uh, you were affected, but it's okay." Well, it's not okay. You know, there's arrogance in that kind of an exchange. This is the example. You want to look at um, everything that is centralized, is my thesis. Everything that's hyper-centralized is going to be apt to be hacked or to be broken. Why? Because of the value of the data that you see there. Some people are looking at modalities of decentralization in s several types of forms, if, especially if we look at identity and self-sovereign identity becomes very interesting. A lot there. You mentioned polarity. It's an interesting juxtaposition of mm -hmm. something you normally see in, in science. So I'll throw another word at you, uh, this idea of being asymmetric. Mm -hmm. Because you said it takes years, decades to build your brand. It can be destroyed instantly. So how do companies deal with that asymmetric nature of the cost, the reward, and just having to defend against it? They Well, I think uh, so. so some of the companies, what's happening is now um, – is creating from from my perspective is creating a mindset of trust in itself which is associated with some form of security so um, i spoke with the chairman of a board of a, um, a grid company electrical grid company and at the board level there they spent a half a day just on cybersecurity. they want to know what are the possible attack vectors they want to create this mindset of security within the company. It's not just a CISO. It's everybody has to have that or be, be cognizant of it. You know, where are we? Uh, what kinds of penetration testing are being done or attack vectors? Those, that's, those are the examples I think we should uh, be concentrating, especially if we're talking about things. And so trust as a mindset, um, I think what, what is happening now is that, uh, you know, People are once that once your your trust has been broken, there they have to look at how do you climb out of that, and that's a hard question to respond to because you know they have to come back and say we lost your trust today, but if you're the millions of people affected by Capital One, what do you do? Or any of these types of examples, what do you do? And so I think this is where people are looking for other opportunities to be responsible also for their uh, for their data. Taking more of an optimistic view on it, because there's a lot we could do, I think, on the, on the negative side of it. In a world where there are a lot of breaches, mm -hmm. and like you said, you're now, you think of a company's name, you think about the latest breach, is there upside or is there a possibility for companies to now have a, maybe a competitive differentiator if they show they're not only trustworthy, that they're investing a lot for people's trust. Absolutely. I mean, uh, absolutely. I, I think going back just to the example of Cisco, one of the things that they've done or tried to do, or I mean, these are examples that I have uh, touted, they gamified it. For example, they created something like a jujitsu program that everybody had to be like a minimum green belt. You know, if you were going the technical route or you're going to admin route, if you were a black belt, you were doing research and they were touting that because it was a, this is an example of everybody's responsibility. And they would actually have exercises. Uh, you wouldn't know it. So you could have a social uh, engineering attack that was 
engineered by the company leads or wherever to just to see where you were at. I think doing that is is really really cool opportunity. I think to do to to create that level of value and examples. I do believe that it's, it would be great for for companies and organizations or even countries to think about you know, assessment centers. Where are you in your testing and vulnerabilities, et cetera? That's bringing value. A lot of small and medium businesses don't know where to go, yet they're the most vulnerable. There's some cool opportunities in this space. And I think that would be, that would be super. Once again, you were listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. We're here with Monique Morrow, president of the Vetri Foundation, and talking about humanizing the internet, through trust and transparency. Monique, how do companies actually go about thinking through the Internet of Things and all these devices and bring your own device? And how has that changed from just the old idea of the centralized systems that you secured to all these things on the edge? Well, this is where we have to be so cognizant of what security can look like um, because the stakes are higher, especially with when we're talking about 5G and so on, and especially if we're talking about consumer types of devices, we need to be very cognizant of what does safety look like. So it's all about safety, in, in my opinion. For example, uh, one of the things is, uh, especially if you are wearing uh, uh, something that's wearable, like an insulin pump, think about w- what would be the probabilities of somebody hacking that, which has happened, right? How do you prevent that? It's about safety in these devices and being able to communicate what is safe. This becomes really, really key. And I have a quote here. I mean, there were cyber attacks on IoTs, a Forbes article, uh, that surged 300%. And this is millions of reported claims. So that does bring the opportunity, but it also says that in a connected society where we're super hyper-connected, we need to be very cognizant of the safety of, if we're creating devices, what does safety look like? And to be able to communicate safety in a way that the uh, consumer or the enterprise understands it. And by the way, I would always consider doing things like uh, penetration testing and vulnerability testing within the enterprise itself and within other organizations itself. You know, I actually hosted uh, Swiss cybersecurity days this past February, and we had, you know, there's a whole opportunity in business around ethical hacking. It was a 21-year-old girl who actually hacked a car within five minutes. And she did that to prove a point. And I said, why did you do that? She said, to prove a point about how safe is safe or unsafe. So those are the types of opportunities when you're talking about vehicle-to-vehicle communications. We talked about a zero-day scenario, and the zero-day scenario is one day you wake up and the mobile phone, critical infrastructure is attacked, the trains aren't working, um, and planes are falling out of the sky. Now, you may think, okay, this is really dystopian, but these are um, scenarios that were discussed at that conference. You know, you have to look at what does aircraft safety look like. There's an aircraft safety institute uh, for research in in Switzerland to look at aircraft safety and standards. And it's not about, you know, what you're bringing in. It's other stuff. It's wireless. It's communications. So on one hand, I'm very excited about the promise, the promise, especially when dealing with augmented reality of these technologies. On the other hand, it's also about because we're so hyper-connected to come in with a security mindset. One of my favorite words is uh, duality, mm-hmm. because you go to think about more than one. Let's call it two things simultaneously. Not necessarily opposing, but certainly they're, they're just different. And you'd mentioned before about security versus privacy. Can you comment on the balance and how companies or governments make decisions about balancing those two things? I always say privacy by design. So let's 
just start out with that. I mean, we've seen a lot of great privacy by design kinds of issues, and, and we have uh, standards around the space. So I think anything that is attributed to you, to an IP address, to your telephone number, and I can read it, or your social security number, it's not private, right? So there we have to think about, you know, what is what is considered private? This is where, now I'm going to get geeky, zero-knowledge proofs come in. If you look up an organization called zkproof.org, what you're finding out, and by the way, zero knowledge proof is, it's been in the academic world for years, but now you're starting to see industries adopting it. There's an Israeli company called Kedit, Q-A-D-I-T, that, is, that actually is using um, zero knowledge proofs to create what they call a privacy internet layer. It means uh, that I have a secret, but I can't share that secret with you. It's a lot of cryptography, but it basically it goes along the lines of questions like, I think you're between the ages of 25 and whatever, and you know, sort of uh, those types of questions. There are standards around zero knowledge proofing and credentialing, you know, which is the verifying institution. W3C is another one that's in this space. On credentialing um, and, you know, this whole notion of using these sets of technologies have been emerging for the past several years. In fact, if you're looking at identity, it's for many years. And so uh, lots of conferences have been occurring in the Bay Area. So a lot of that is to make sure that your data is is anonymized. If we look at Europe, if we look at Germany, you have the whole uh, GDPR, you know, the private regulation, uh, data regulation issues that you have to adhere to as a company is a hash data. How can you prove a hash is not data? It's not enough to say I encrypt. Uh, you know, you have to look at uh, where, where your proofs are coming in. And so those become, an, and by the way, if you can accomplish some level of privacy in Europe that is difficult and, and strict, GDPR is probably one that you can look at adopting. And th but the thing of it is, these were adopted by judges and legal systems, and people are looking, okay, where's the technology behind it? How do you prove to a judge it really isn't data of data of data of data? It's, it's fun. It's opportunities, in my opinion. The other duality, related but a little bit different, is for a company that's trying to serve, sell to, and serve a customer base, mm -hmm. this idea of their safety versus their user experience. Because, yep. oh, those layers of security can really get in the way of, you know, getting stuff done. And so what is the balance or, or any advice that you have to companies trying to, to think about that trade-off? It's funny because I actually spoke about that because it is very key. You, you do not want to take away from the user experience. So the art is trying to hide a, a little bit of that complexity. And that's, that's very difficult without sacrificing the user uh, experience. You know, the user wants to be able to use your product in such a way that it is easy to use yet safe. And so um, do not expect a user to read uh, or a customer to read 30 or 40 or 50 pages of regulation. Maybe you and I would sit down and read the regulation. They're not going to. They just want to I just get me in, lop me in. I want to, you know, and I think it's incumbent. There are now legal cases looking at, uh, hey, wait a minute, you shouldn't be doing that. The customer has no right yet to, to actually, he, he or she wants that service. The service is immediate. And yet you're obliging this customer to read all of this legalese. Or at least scroll down as fast as you and can until that little thing becomes active. And so uh, now people want a little bit of simplicity in, in that art. And I think that's an opportunity for us in the industry is to make it simpler read. Yet, um, you know, I, and I realize the companies want to protect themselves with all the legality. But, you know, customers want to use your product in a way that it's safe. But, but don't expect them to read all throughout all of these materials. Just like you mentioned, these potentially dystopian scenarios with airplanes falling out of the sky, 
What about services like 23andMe that you know people can go in and you're talking about security in a whole other level. Um, what, what, any other thoughts or is it just the same kind of general guidelines? An interesting question, especially around uh, personalized medicine, which is where you're going, but somebody's holding your data. Uh, you don't know how that data is used. Well, not just personalized medicine. I'm also thinking in the future, if somebody really had it in for you, you play with a few uh, well, they could chromosomes pay. and they could design a, a well, disease. I think people are, I think there, is, there are examples right now of designer babies happening as we speak. You know, I mean, there was uh, an example, I think they were trying to do this in China or, or somewhere. Or, or even if they, let's say, have it in for you and they decide to play around with something that yeah, will I, affect you. I don't believe in sharing that level of data <laughs> yeah. to anybody. Uh, what is personalized? But I do believe that if you're going to deal with personalized medicine or in its fashion because it's becoming cheaper, you have to make sure you control where that data is going. And that's a simple, that your question goes to control to some extent, all right? If you look at the source of 23andMe, I mean, you know, Sergey Brin uh, had been supporting uh, his his ex-wife in this space. Why? Because he has a 50% chance of getting Parkinson's disease, as I understand it. And so he wants to be able to target a cure for that. And so there's reason to say, okay, I need to target a cure, but I don't want anybody messing with my chromosomes or whatever in such a way that it becomes very, very vastly dystopian. It gets worse because in this kind of space, what will happen is to say, well, look, you know, you get you have about a 50% chance of having some disease therefore we can't hire you therefore your premiums are going to go higher or whatever mm-hmm. so those are the types of things that we have to be extremely careful about now in Estonia there has been movement to basically say i trust this doctor but i don't trust this doctor i don't want my data sent to that doctor where a patient does has the right to do that but again it's like you should be in the middle of this copernican revolution or evolution or whatever a universe and to be able to determine and control selectively disclose that I will, you know, emphasize selectively disclose where your data is going to go to. You know, we look at some of the examples that are being used today and the potential. We assume that companies, organizations can self-govern. Uh, we have seen cases where that is not the case. And then, of course, we have to look at where there's abuse, at, at least at the government level. And so, you know, where uh, people want to know, uh, want to be able to create superhumans. I was actually in an UN event and we were talking about the future and uh, it was very provocative. You know, it used to be, hey, look, I want my driver's license because I want a car. Now, what we can imagine is that kids will say, I want a brain extender. You know, I want that, daddy and mommy. I want my brain extended, you know. And so people are going to be looking at that. What would teaching look like? What would that be? And these are the scenarios people have been talking about. (laughs) There is a divergence and convergence. I think we're diverging right now, which is is great. Again, it gets you thinking. Converging a little bit, Mm -hmm. bringing it back. What are some trends? You mentioned one possible. What are some trends that that you, you see coming in the area of security and trust? I think people are going to pay more attention to what they do at the chip level. I think uh, a lot of that is going to be uh, what kinds of designs will you create at the hardware level because the first abusers of the, the data that you're trying to protect are the actual characters, miscreant characters, and that will go down to the machine level. So I see some 
promise there. I see people are going down to, you know, making sure at least uh, areas at hardware is tightened in software. So you see the knobs looking at what the tightening uh, could be. And that's kind of the promise I, I do see. And I do want to express that, uh, you know, and emphasize that it's all about safety at the end of the day. So there is definitely a, a look at what is tamper-proof, what is tamper-less, how can you detect, for example, it's been tampered, a device has been tampered, uh, lots of forward thinking in, in that particular space. The other area that I think we should be paying attention to is chatbots. You have miscreant characters trying to actually conscript chatbots to actually infect your network, especially when you're looking at a, a bot and when, how a chatbot is. So people are looking at real-time communications or near real-time communications, and they have to be able to determine, you know, is this a human or not a human or, or an aspect of a human, or is it a chatbot that a chatbot that you are, do you trust? Because we're talking about trust at this point in time. And then, of course, uh, what's really cool is uh, recognizing patterns of the way devices behave. You can actually start determining patterns, especially on manufacturing floors, such that if they do diverge, whether it's temperature drops or whatever, you will have a series of analytics pointed to you and you can actually look and determine what the deltas were and where the sources. What can business leaders do to help with trust and secure going forward? Not this pie in the sky, but over the next year or two, what are the kind of things they can put in place? They have to have a mindset. It starts at the the board level. People are looking at dashboards. How vulnerable is our equipment? Uh, have we been actually doing some vulnerability testing? You can gamify it through the employee uh, examples that I gave. You know who's a green belt, who's a you know, and keep constantly doing that. You can actually start looking at uh, social engineering attacks. The mindset is uh, the CISO can only do so much. So in, in ensuring a mindset of trust and ensuring a mindset of security and values is really, really important. And being able to gamify it is really great. I think that those are the examples I think are very, very critical. And these are opportunities, you know, at the end of the day. To wrap it up, uh, obviously, you've got tremendous background and perspective. Who has been a major influence for you and, and how? I think in the, in the space that we're talking about, um, I like the book uh, Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. Uh, it's about four or 500 pages <laughs> of research in this space about how, you are, how people are metadata of metadata of metadata. It's worth a read. And uh, I think uh, what Susana Zuboff has done has really uh, been provocative in, in this particular space of, uh, you know, uh, how data is used and, and or misused. And I think she would be an example of somebody who's really affected my mindset. Lastly, how can people find you online? My mail is uh, morrow at vetri.global. They can send me a mail or they can send me a ping via LinkedIn. Everyone can find details on our show notes and transcripts at emphasis.com slash IKI in our podcast section. Monique, thank you very much for your time and a very interesting discussion. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing. <laughs>